It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the show James Cunningham, and he is a filmmaker, historian, and journalist, adjunct graduate and faculty member of the Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University, and a part-time professor in the Faculty of Arts at Seneca College, and also the president of Tamarack Productions in Peterborough, Ontario. So it's a pleasure to welcome James back to the show. James. Great to be here, David. Nice to talk to you. And likewise, so I understand that we're now here to talk about something that is very uh, very much in the forefront of everyone's mind these days, and some people are breathing a bit of a sigh of relief because of the last few days with the U.S. election taking place. And uh, you've been looking at this for quite some time. You've lived in the States. Uh, you lived, uh, I think uh, you said you spent a fair amount of your youth in Florida. That's true. Well, then, you have firsthand experience of that. And what can you tell us, first of all, about your, your, your looking at the overall political situation south of the border? Well, it's a defeat for a first-time president, which doesn't happen a lot. Mm-hmm. It happened to Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. It happened to uh, George Bush Sr. in our lifetimes. And now it's happened to Donald Trump. Um, I don't think that's terribly surprising I think the extent to which it was actually pretty close is uh, perhaps more surprising. Mm. And uh, it represents um, a huge shift. Um, it represents, hopefully, for the United States, an opportunity to uh, return to more civil forms of discourse. And uh, for those of us on the planet, it, uh, you know, if uh, Biden and Harris and the Democrats that support them are true to their word, it should mean uh, more effective action um, by the United States on issues like uh, climate change, which mm-hmm. obviously would be uh, beneficial to all of us uh, on planet Earth, including Canadians. But mm-hmm. um, let's see. You know, when we talk about climate change, that is a situation that is not going to go away and is only going to get worse if we don't take action. But what does go away are politicians and governments because every four years there's elections and these things go back and forth and there's support on either side, as we all know. Uh, It sounds like we need something more permanent in place that that governments can come up with uh, to to allow these kind of things like ongoing issues that are going to affect the planet and the globe that we live on, uh, you know, so so that these things can move forward and not have to worry about you know, being interrupted or, or set back or, or debates? Well, certainly on the climate um, topic, that was the intent of Paris Accord and mm-hmm. others. Now, uh, some of its critics, and that obviously included um, the outgoing president of the United States, Donald Trump, but mm-hmm. others have said, well, what's the point of having these big global um, agreements if people don't have to respect them mm-hmm. and major emitters um, don't uh, sign on are clearly not planning to respect it. So there are huge, huge arguments right. about, for example, um, 
Canada's own individual response. You know, the fact is that you and I, as average Canadians, are among um, the carbon uh, emitting culprits yes. of the uh, planet. And um, the goals that were identified have been met by very, very few countries. Mm-hmm. So there was reason to be skeptical. But um, your question about, okay, what can we do to ensure that there's continuity in some of these very important global um, matters? Um, the idea of international accords that are there and remain in place, regardless of the politicians changing caste, I mean, that's one of the things, and maybe that's one of the things that will improve now that we have this outlier, um, Donald Trump uh, leaving the White House, if indeed he is leaving the White House. Yes. I'm pretty sure he's leaving the White House, but um, there are, uh, he has not conceded. Yes. And um, as you and your listeners probably know, you know, a number of the states are incredibly close. Mm. And uh, a couple of them, I think, at this moment, uh, Wisconsin almost certainly, and maybe Georgia, are within the mandated uh, recount. Like, mm. it's close enough that it's got nothing to do with what Donald Trump or, right. or Joe Biden would like. Right. That's the law. There has to be a recount because yes. it was that close. Yes. So that's going to take a bit of time. So um, it's complicated, but we appear to know where this thing is heading. And certainly mm-hmm. uh, Biden declared victory and his media supporters uh, joined him and his uh, his uh, followers in the United States and elsewhere in uh the world, including Mm -hmm. Canada, celebrated on Saturday. Because he has not said he's accepting this, he has a huge following. He has, you know, the the, the Trump phenomenon that is following him. And uh, these people, although they've been very quiet of of late, uh, what do you think could possibly happen? Because let's face it, it, it's very divided still in the States, even though uh, this election seems to be going in in the favor of, of, of Joe Biden. Even Joe Biden and and everyone is saying, let's have calmer uh, temperatures and let's you know be civil to each other. We're all Americans. Uh, putting out that kind of, of rhetoric uh, indicates that there's there's much more at play. Well, one hopes that um, the legal process that's required, and as I said, I think the uh, recounting that has to be done. Um, has uh, has nothing to do with uh, Trump's wishes that I think is uh, required by law, um, depending on where the final count ends up. Um, when it becomes clearer to him and his team that it doesn't really matter that he lost in a certain number of states and the electoral college vote is what it is, and there's no way that Biden is going to get below 270, then uh, he may concede. That may be coming um, sooner rather than later. Um, you know, the scuttlebutt in Washington, if it can be trusted, is that some people, um, including Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, and who is probably responsible for a few of the um, good things that uh, happened under the uh, Trump um, presidency, um, and apparently his wife, Melania, have said, listen, dude, you know, you lost. It's mm-hmm. time to duck out gracefully. Mm. Um, but grace is not something that we normally associate <laughs> with Donald Trump. He's a fighter. Yes. Um, and uh, he likes that posture. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it helped make him president. Sure. I mean, you sure know, he knew things about the American electorate in 2016 that uh, nobody else seemed to know. Yep. You know, we'll see what he does. But uh, once the um, state results are ratified, and I think that happens in December with the Electoral College, mm-hmm. I think it's December, if not, it's January, certainly weeks and weeks before the um, before the inauguration date, then it's, you know, the there's no... There's no denying that the next president, the president-elect, is Joe Biden. And hopefully everyone, mm-hmm. Republicans and, you know, people to the right of the Republicans, you know, the fringe militia types and stuff who um, who may be very, very agitated about this. The one thing I think that we can say about the United States is that there's a very, very strong current of patriotism that mm-hmm. runs, um, you know, across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. That may be kicking in or begin to kick in and people just think, you know, well, we have to turn the page. We may not, some of us may not like the result, but mm-hmm. we have to turn the page. Um, I hope we're getting there, but you're right. It's still, it's still risky. And um, the fact that, you know, there are basically 50 different systems for counting votes in a federal election means that we have uh, built in anomalies that uh, kind of uh, boggle the mind, you mm-hmm. know, Pennsylvania was called, which kind of put Biden over the top on Saturday. But he had a smaller lead there than Trump still has in North Carolina. And North Carolina hasn't been called. Mm. Yeah, I don't understand that. But mm. look at the numbers. That, that's what they say. Right. Um, and obviously, states like Arizona and Georgia uh, were incredibly close. Right. When you consider the millions of, of votes that were um, the ballots that were uh, deposited, so uh, yes, I mean, I repeat myself. Uh, it's very clear that barring something completely unpredictable that we don't can't imagine happened, that Biden won, and the world is waking up to that. Americans are waking up to that, and hopefully, Trump and his supporters are going to. Uh, find a um a way to leave the stage you know holding on to uh what dignity they can but without being too disruptive but um we're not there yet you know something i i i don't really want to say but but i heard it reported and and it was a, a trump supporter uh someone i think in within his campaign uh, said the other day that uh, trump shouldn't rule out running again uh, I'm wondering if that's going to be the silver lining for them that he might come back and and, and try to run again in the next election. But I well, thought- I mean, I don't think he's going to do that. But I haven't had a conversation with him about it, and no one <laughs> seems to know what's going on inside his mind. Um, I, I doubt very much that that's going to happen. I think what we have to acknowledge, and I think that uh, for my part, as a working journalist, as somebody who's been in the profession for thirty plus years. I think, um, you know, the ancillary tragedy of the Trump era was the effect that it had on journalism Mm. because you had otherwise sensible people completely losing their minds on the left, in the center and on the right. I mean, we knew what to expect from Fox News before 2016. What we didn't know was that other agencies like CNN, like MSNBC would time and time again put their disdain of Trump over quality journalism. Mm. I mean, and I, um, that troubles me. Mm. 
And I hope um, somebody wrote a very good column on the Hill that is carried on RealClearPolitics.com um, about uh, the effect of the Trump era on the uh, cable news networks and how it was time for them to put aside their tribalism. Mm. Well, I certainly hope that can happen because, I mean, Trump is objectionable. Many of us would be opposed to many of his ideas, but getting a story absolutely wrong and then being unrepentant about it, as many, many people in the media did in the summer of 2016, the fall of 2016, and right up until the point when the Mueller report came down, two years and $48 million, to say, hey, this charge, which many people were accepting as fact, that Trump himself had um, had conspired with Russian agents to mm. defeat Hillary Clinton is untrue. Mm. Um, but that was being reported as fact. Right. And um, uh, so uh, the I think that and watching the campaign as closely as I did over the last number of months, right from the Democratic um, nomination process through the entire election campaign, through the virtual uh, conventions that both the Democrats and the Republicans had, the um, the tribalism was just so apparent. I mean, it, you know, there's no no such thing as unbiased media, but now it's just so damn apparent. Mm. You know, you want to know what the Democrats are thinking, you watch CNN. You want to know what <laughs> some of the Republicans are watching, thinking, you watch Fox. Right. Well, who's committing journalism? And, <laughs> mm. and too many of... Um, too many of us, the rest of the world of journalism, mm. began to exhibit the same behavior. Um, and, um, you know, Trump's unpleasantness, his reliance on Twitter, um, his manner of insulting people routinely, of jumping to conclusions, unfortunately, uh, that became contagious. Yeah. And it wasn't just his side doing it. Right. And um, that, I think, is one of the real... Uh, hurtful things and damaging things that uh, that is the legacy of Trump to date, and um, it dealing with that is not just the responsibility of him and his supporters, because too many on the other side began to behave exactly the same way. Yeah. So, James, what do you think then is you said the legacy of of Trump? And, and I've heard that mentioned uh, before. What I'm wondering about is what are the long-term effects that, that he will have on uh, both, do you think, will, on both the U.S. and on journalism as we, as we go forward? Well, I'm hoping it's not a long-term effect, but the general lack of civility mm. and the, um, the tendency towards extreme discourse mm. has clearly been part of uh, his era, I hope. It's not its legacy. Mm -hmm. I hope that as we saw in the Toronto area with the switch from the late Rob Ford to John Tory, um, civility matters and uh, sensible discourse matters. And, uh, hopefully that in itself, uh, has a, um, has a, um, a cultural effect in terms of legacy. Um, partly because of the tribalism I described, uh, almost no one other than his supporters reported on um, Trump's achievements. And mm -hmm. there were a few. Mm -hmm. I mean, peace deals with Arab countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe the Palestinians uh, are not happy, but those peace deals with Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates, with the, 
the Sudan, they're not insignificant. And they are peace deals, which is better than the alternative. Um, I think his um, some of the um, issues that he raised around China's behavior in trade, um, now he may not have dealt with it very well, but certainly um, I think that the world generally, and certainly the Canadian prime minister and others, are looking at uh, China and its behavior differently than they were in 2016. I think part of that has to do with uh, Trump. And um, the other thing is that Mr. Biden, who clearly got significant support, in some cases overwhelming support in in urban areas, particularly from African-Americans, Trump, and once again advised by Jared Kushner, actually corrected um, some of the worst aspects of the 1994 crime bill, which did target um, unfairly people of color, Mm. particularly young males of color in the United States. And uh, Trump, in a bipartisan um, way, managed to um, change some of that, uh, the legacy of the 1994 crime bill in terms of its uh, incarceration rates and whatnot. Um, It was not an insignificant achievement, but once again, his opponents in the media barely uh, reported it. Mm. In terms of climate, in terms of the border, um, hopefully things are going to improve, but it's also important to remember that the deportation rate of Hispanic Americans from the United States was generally higher in the Obama-Biden uh, administration mm. than it was in the last four years. And um, Trump, with his normal inelegance, liked to call it his wall. But of course, the wall has been built by every president. Um, since the 1980s, at least, if not the 1970s, including the Democratic uh, presidents. So the idea of of uh, putting up a secure border and fences and uh, monitoring devices along the Mexican-American border and treating so-called illegal immigrants and workers in the United States poorly, that is not an invention of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, he talked about it in very... Um, horrible ways. You should be criticized for it. But to assume that those policies are suddenly going to change automatically because it's a Democratic president, I'm not sure um, looking at history carefully gives us that comfort. Um, I'm certainly hoping those things improve, um, but we'll see. That, so that tribalism, that was another thing. And the, the Trump nation, the support that he got. Uh, recently, again, in another interview, uh, it was it was said by by one of the guests that, you know, people that support Trump really see him as someone that, that they're, they're not just uh, – it's not just uh, – he doesn't represent them. He, he is them. When he speaks, he speaks their language. It, they see themselves in Trump. And, I, and, and he said that's why they're so hardcore about, about supporting him. And and I thought that's you know that's really interesting. It's an interesting perspective, and probably why there was so much hardcore support behind this man. Well, he changed the uh, mold of what one could expect from a national politician in the United States, or he went back to a certain kind of uh, right wing populist mold that had existed more at the state level than mm-hmm. at the um, national level, and um, I think that is part of his. Legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, the suspicion that he um, voiced 
about the behavior, the inside the beltway behavior of um, career politicians. Um, you know, there are reasons to be skeptical of some of that behavior. Mm. He voiced it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And also in the United States, and uh, in my experience, I mean, I was a boy living in Florida. You know, I returned to uh, my family, returned to Canada when I was about uh, 10 or 11 permanently. So, uh, you know, I didn't go to high school in uh, Florida. I started elementary school there. And because of my work as a documentarist and journalist, I've been working in the United States Mm -hmm. off and on my entire career. So um, I do know the country pretty well, and I have family from both my family and my wife's family scattered all over the place. Mm. So um, I think one of the things that's emerged that Trump capitalized in 2016 was you have a liberal coast, coastal populations, very large populations in New York, Massachusetts, on the other side of the continent in California, Oregon, Washington state. They have a certain way generally of looking at the country and then you have a huge number of states in the middle who felt kind of left out from this elite discourse and from some of the economic changes that were crippling what had been the industrial heartland of the Midwest because of trade agreements like NAFTA, because of um, the emergence of China. I mean, these things may have been inevitable, but Trump correctly voiced um, – the resentment that growing numbers of people um, felt about, um, you know, elites mm. located largely on either coast, mm. not understanding what was going on in the heartland. And uh, some of that uh, is the reason that he won in 2016. And the fact that um, that shifted narrowly towards Biden in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania um, is the reason why Trump is now defeated. I think that um, you talk about how, you know, the identification of, you know, let's use the term Trump nation Mm -hmm. with um, the Donald himself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a, it's a, it's a extraordinary phenomenon that we witnessed. It's sometimes a little frightening, um, but it's also, I think it behooves us who might, tend to see the world a little differently who might tend to have benefited from um, good educations and have had more or less decent economic opportunities in our lives mm. to understand that a lot of people have been left aside in mm. the last 20 to 40 years right. as you know, the digital universe and the economy has emerged and that things that um, some elite tend to look down on um, faith, small communities, mm. rural living that is not associated with a cottage, but is actually, you know, trying to make a living in a mm. rural area that a lot of those people felt underrepresented. And um, man, you know, Donald Trump, he knew how to tap into it in 2016. Yeah. Um, I think part of it was inspiration. Part of it was cynicism Part of it, he probably felt that uh, he was speaking to people who needed to be spoken for. I think it's a whole mix of things. But what I find personally objectionable is to assume that everybody voted, everybody who voted for Trump 
is a stone cold racist mm. or deplorable to right. use Hillary Clinton's unfortunate phrase. Some of them are just run of the mill American conservatives and, um, they don't necessarily, uh, take on all the qualities of the, uh, of the defeated Donald right. Trump, right. but they're not going anywhere. Right. Right. James, we're, we're unfortunately out of time, but there's so many things I wanted to talk with you about. For instance, we, we didn't really get to the Democratic Party and, and, uh, and some of the things that they, you know, could have done differently. Uh, you mentioned the self-inflicted wounds of the Democratic Party. It would be great to talk about that. So I think we're going to have to have you back on the show to we, so we can continue this. Because if you don't mind, I'd also like to talk with you about the, the Electoral College system itself. And and how that plays into this, and 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 how and why that was set up. I, I've just started to get into that history myself. I think it's pretty fascinating. I don't think enough people know about that. Well, it's pretty uh, essential to the American system, and yeah. uh, full of contradictions and lots of interesting arguments both ways. So. David, I'm always happy to come back and, uh, yeah, bring me back. <laughs> <laughs> Great. We'll look forward to doing that. But, but thank you so much for coming on to the show today and, and giving us uh, these insights into the election as it is so far. We much appreciate you doing that. That's James Cullingham, and he is a filmmaker, historian, and journalist, adjunct graduate, and faculty member at the Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies at Trent University, and a part-time professor in the Faculty of Arts at Seneca College and president of Tamarack Productions in Peterborough, Ontario. Pleasure having him on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listen to our show, but please don't go away because we're going to be back with more right after this, right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, Ansley Simpson. And she is a Toronto-based Anishinaabe speaker, labor rep, and a singer-songwriter known for her poetic lyrics, her deep-moving vocals, and uh, dreamlike arrangements. And she has a new song, and she's going to have a new album actually coming out in the new year. And uh, Ansley is back on the show because... She is a part of this uh, series called Amplify. It's airing on APTN. And uh, Ansley's episode, episode 10, premieres in Ojibwe on fr- this Friday morning on APTN and rebroadcasts in English on Monday night, November the 16th at 7 p.m. and is streaming anytime, anywhere on APTM Lumi. That's it. That's the ticket. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Ansley, great to have you back on the show. Miigwech. Thanks for having me. So, uh, what can you tell us about about this episode? You've got uh, you've got a new song that I believe you may have written for this episode. Did you not? I did. Yeah. So um, it was a couple of years ago, I guess, that Shane Belcourt, who mm-hmm. um, directed this episode, mm-hmm. approached me to write a song for this new series that he was he was part of um, that he created, where they would follow around a songwriter and sort of showcase everything behind the song, um, like at the process of writing it, what inspired it right down through the recording process into the studio. Mm. 
And it just sounded like such a great idea that I wanted to be a part of it. So originally he's like, okay, so, you know, let's, let's get started. And I had a couple of songs ready and he's like, no, no, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. going to start from the very beginning here, <laughs> um, which threw me, of course. Uh, but the results and the whole process in general were just really powerful. And it was such a great thing to be a part of. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, how about we actually give that song a little bit of a listen uh, right now. How about that? Oh, sounds good. One, two, three, four. I'm barely sleeping as it is. The night comes out to swallow me whole. There's no more whiskey keeping. There's no more trouble in my soul Yeah, very nice, Ansley. Sounds sounds like your uh, typical kind of approach to music. Uh, those lyrics, the, the mood, very nicely produced, of course. Thank you. Yeah, you know, this one was extra fun because um, I recorded it on tape, which I'd never done before. Oh. And so it's sort of, it's like an instrument unto itself. It sort Mm -hmm. of adds this dynamic or this presence that isn't there when you just go straight into digital. So So that was my producer, Simone Schmidt's Mm. idea. They Mm. produced this one and did an amazing job. So yeah, Yeah, that, that nice warmth that analog gives it, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Cool. So you got followed around by Shane Belcourt about uh, filming this whole process and writing this song called Firewater. Uh, why and, and, and how did you come up with the idea for the song? Huh. Yeah, that was a whole, that was an interesting process in and of itself. That was a particularly difficult winter for me um, when we first started sort of into this process. And then the spring when we were recording the uh, episode, and I had been sober, I believe, for about two years at that point mm-hmm. and was, you know, struggling with feeling the intensity of the emotion that was coming up fully without having sort of, you know, a drink to shut it down or stop it. And that's mm. particularly true, I think, for anyone who suffers from the type of anxiety that I have. Um, so I was looking for different ways and different things that I could hold on to that would help support my sobriety and i found or i heard harold johnson speak about his new book called firewater Mm. um and i absolutely dug into it and it really blew me away it's it's distilled it's potent it's really powerful and it was something that i could immediately hold on to that strengthened my approach to sobriety Mm. so yeah from there um it just the images that sort of come up with firewater, with how alcohol was used as a tool for colonization for our mm. people. Um, in particular, that all started to really resonate with me on this new level. So from there, I just kind of wrote this song that helped me personally get out of that place of really heavy, you know, darkness. Mm. Okay, and uh, and how long did it take you to go through that process of writing? Because you're being followed around with a with a crew of people. Uh, you got your director hanging around. So so, what was that whole process like? 
Yeah, uh, it was great, actually. I was really, I, I didn't know how it was going to go because, mm. you know, it's hard enough to do this sort of thing on your own right. by yourself without right. anyone watching. But um, Shane and his team in particular, they're very good at just supporting you as an artist and then stepping into the background. So I could kind of forget they were there. Um, so I can't remember how many days. I know it was one day in the studio. That's all, that's all we had or needed for that part. Mm. Um, and again, they were right there uh, with the cameras set up, mm-hmm. being so quiet. Right. Right. Because <laughs> uh, they literally would have been picked up. On, yeah. on the track um, as we were recording. And again, with tape, you you get one shot. It's recorded sort of live. And then we were able to add layers to it afterwards. But the, the core track is just done in one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they were fantastic at um, and sort of being there. And I think they really caught um, my process of writing a song really honestly, which mm-hmm. was cool to see, too. Mm-hmm. And how was that for you, looking back at it when it was finished? Oh, man, it's it's so interesting. Like, I had my daughter involved um, with the music video making at the mm. end, mm-hmm. uh, which was so much fun. That felt really uplifting. Um, you know, I think, again, it just, like the song, it just sort of starts. At, it started for me being part of this process in that darker sort of place. And by the end of it, I just felt like I had this new community of people around me cheering me on, supporting me. And it sort of reconnected me um, to myself and to the land, my community, everything um, at the end of it. So I'm really grateful for the whole process. Okay, so tell me more about the the process of, because like you said, the video at the end. So this is the process and then you, mm-hmm. and then you guys make an, an actual video at the end of it as well? Yeah, we did. Okay. That was fun. Shane and I... Shane and I have worked together in the past mm-hmm. and he's probably heard me say more than once that I wanted to light something on fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> he obliged. He was like, okay, let's do it. I cannot think of a better song for us to have like a full fire. So um, we actually were, I think in Brantford and um, we had this massive fire built. I've got pictures of it. It was huge, bigger than any fire that I've, you know, built in my backyard or mm. up at the farm. Mm. Um, and we caught, we, we had like a guitar that we threw in this old, you know, garage sale didn't work anymore. Guitar that we mm. sort of threw in the fire. Um, I had all this, again, my, my daughter was with me. So she plays sort of this role and got to act and she absolutely loves that and mm. loves to be a part of these processes. So yeah, it was fun mm. for sure. That part in particular. Now, the history of the song, as you, you mentioned, it, it ties in with your own association with alcohol, but it also ties in with, as you say, the history of Indigenous people and how that was used to, as a colonization tool to take mm-hmm. advantage of Indigenous people. Um, what are you hoping people take away from both the song and the video? Yeah, um, I'm hoping that uh, people that are like me working on holding their sobriety or those that are sort of working with harm reduction in order to lower their alcohol use or, or, you know, obtain or uh, begin to be sober or begin that Mm. process to sobriety. I hope that they're inspired and sort of find some strength in it. I didn't want to resolve this song lyrically in a place where, um, where everything's all better because that really wasn't my experience with sobriety. It certainly improved my life, but 
it's difficult, right? You have to fully feel an emotion <laughs> all the way to the end. So mm. I decided lyrically to, to sort of leave it in this unresolved state where um, there's no more trouble than my soul is sort of the final line. Mm. Um, but there's no more whiskey involved. So it's mm. this, it's this sort of reality where I find strength that I can have a troubled soul. I can have troubled emotions. I can experience things intensely and I don't have to add alcohol. Right. So I'm hoping that people take away from this, um, some strength. Mm. You know, that's interesting. We, we had a, we had someone on, uh, who wrote a book about her episode, her, her, her involvement with alcohol as well. And uh, it was really interesting to read because it really took me inside because she really tried to, tried to get someone that is not an alcoholic because she is, she's a, you know, full, al- a full, full on alcoholic. So she tried to take you inside the mind and, and get you to understand that, that, of what it what it really feels like to to have that uh, take control of your life and and where you you know nothing else matters and and it was a really interesting journey to to go through that process so it's interesting to have this uh, you know this song follow up with that as well so we thank yeah. you for for doing that and uh, and hopefully uh, it sounds great uh, really nice great song we're gonna we're gonna end a little bit with that as well but listen you've got a new album coming out in the spring. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? She fell from the sky. I do. Yes, I've got this 11-track story album that I'm really looking forward to releasing. It was uh, supposed to be out last spring, but of course the pandemic sort mm. of delayed everything. So um, I'm I'm excited. It is so ready to come out. I'm ready for it to be shared, and I really hope people, you know, can can sort of submerge themselves into that mm. storyline and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what else is going on for you during the pandemic these days? Well, I have, I started a record label, mm-hmm. Way. Yep. Um, so I've been working at building that and sort of getting that set up and, you know, working the kinks out of it. Um, generally just hanging out with my daughter, making sure she's doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generally just doing the best I can. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, Ansley, it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show and all the best with the new album coming out in the spring, but all this, this really great song that you've written for Amplify, which, as we mentioned, is going to be uh, airing on Friday morning on APTN and then rebroadcast uh, on Monday night, November the 16th at 7 p.m. And by the way, that premieres in Ojibwe on Friday morning on APTN and it streams anytime, anywhere on APTN Lumi. So uh, why don't we end with a little more of that song. And Ansley, once again, thanks for joining us on Element FM and Moment of Truth. And we look forward to hearing from you again in the future, of course. Miigwech, David. Thank right. you. You bet. Take care. And that's this part of Moment of Truth. But please don't go away because we will be right back momentarily with more. The dawn comes out and warms my bones. There's no more stealing peace There's no more trouble than my soul Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and... Uh, Type in 106.5 or 95.7 as well as ELMNT-FM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show 
Saul Mamakwa. He's an NDP MPP, and uh, he is here on the show. Uh, he's uh, the official opposition critic for the Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation uh, Committee for the NDP, and he is here to talk to us about uh, something he has taken upon himself, and that is to not stand uh, during the playing of God Save the Queen and the Canadian National Anthem in the uh, Legislative Assembly of Ontario. So, uh, Saul, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, David. It's good to be here. Good to be back and uh, nice to be, uh, hope things are well. Well, you know, things are going as well as they can be these days, aren't they, with uh, the COVID-19 locking everything down and we try to deal with that on a daily basis? Yes, it's certainly, uh, there's no uh, playbook or anything on how to deal with this uh, pandemic across the globe. So uh, so we have to uh, try and keep moving forward. Uh, the sun uh, will keep on rising, so we will, we will keep on living. Mm-hmm. So Saul, you, you uh, took this um, upon yourself to not stand uh, for the playing of God Save the Queen and the Canadian National Anthem. Uh, in the Legislative Assembly, and you did that, I believe, because of the ongoing situation uh, with with water in your, your uh, areas. Is that correct? Well, I think uh, there, there are a number of things that are happening in Indigenous communities and yep. uh, in communities across, the, uh, across Canada, across, uh, across Ontario as well, with respect to uh, when we talk about uh, treaty partners, treaty mm-hmm. relations. And uh, it's uh, I had started back in um, you know September uh, 14 when we came back for, for the fall session, and I did it again October, and then uh, just just past Monday, in uh, um, on uh, November the second. So it's a um, you know like it's to um, you know first of all honor my ancestors, honor my. Uh, forefathers, you know, whom that signed the treaties mm. with the province, mm. like and also with the federal government on mm. on that. But also, I think it's not to disrespect, you know, the uh, the Ontarians. It's not to disrespect mm. uh, the Canadians. Mm. It is uh, to honor my uh, ancestors, and then not only that, to elevate on uh, how um, systemic, how. Uh, indigenous people are treated by these both levels of government, and I think that's it's uh, to um, you know um, to be able to show how they treat our people. An example, I mean, today I just came out, uh, came off, uh, uh, came from outside, and there's a rally that's happening, and um, there's a couple of gentlemen from Nishkanaga First Nation who are. And a, uh, a water crisis. They've had no water in their community for 18 days, mm. and no running water. And but more significantly, uh, they've had to boil their water since nine, February one, mm. 1995, mm-hmm. and that's over a quarter of a century. That's right. 25 years plus, and that's unacceptable. And that's what you know. For myself, when the way things are happening, that's what racism looks like. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to call it systemic racism, wh- whether you want to call it uh, uh, colonialism, uh, that's what it looks like. And, uh, you know, when we talk about oppression of our people, and that's what it looks like. And uh, they continue, uh, governments, both levels of government, continue to let things happen like that. And it's, uh, I think, any, 
complacency and the inaction uh, further perpetuates the crisis in our communities. It further perpetuates the colonialism that uh, the governments keep on doing. So that's 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 why I do not get up for mm. you know the national anthem and the royal anthem mm-hmm. because these are very. Um, you know, this place that I'm at, that, uh, you know, uh, Ontario legislature, it's, it was never built for First Nations. It was never built for Indigenous people. And I can see why. And, uh, so, so I think that's, uh, like I've been telling a lot of stories about how, you know, the systems, uh, that are there, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's education, whether it's child welfare, whether it's access to healthcare, whether it's uh, the justice system, the court system, these are not, you know, that's, these systems are not broken. Mm. Because one of the things I've learned uh, working within the communities, working uh, on the provincial side or uh, provincial policies, federal policies, federal systems, you know, these systems aren't broken. They're working exactly the way mm. they're designed, which is to take away the rights of our people to the lands and the resources in our communities mm. and uh, in, the, in our territories. And that's this is not by design. It's, uh, I mean, this is by design. This is not by, right. this is not a mistake. This is not, it's, it's working. So, Saul, when you uh, took this, this action to not stand, uh, I'm wondering if you, do you get support from other people? Are there other people in, in there, in the legislative assembly that, that support you and not stand as well? You know, uh, you know, uh, let me start by saying this, like when I first did it, it like uh, it was uh, an experience that's, you know, like uh, where it's really, um, you know, I get anxious, mm-hmm. I get scared and because uh, I was doing it alone. Yep. Uh, to this day, uh, I haven't, uh, uh, I haven't gotten anybody to do that with me. And there were others that were, have been interested because of COVID, uh, we've had, uh, had to have smaller groups mm-hmm. in our, uh, Hearts of uh, who's going to be there. So, uh, and I think um, so. I haven't been able to, uh, you know, like haven't uh, been able to. Even though some people are interested in uh, in the in some of the uh, in support, but uh, no, I, nobody has mm. sat down. With me yet. Mm. Yeah. The other thing is what you do in the legislative assembly as as a, an NDP MPP. Uh, bringing attention to indigenous issues, representing your community and, and, and also, uh, other indigenous people trying to raise awareness and, and try to get some action taken. You, you know, you just said that, it, you know, it's been 25 years and, and other communities are dealing with these long-standing issues that have not been dealt with. And, you know, so first of all, you know, you know, congratulations to you for, for taking on this, this part. It, it cannot be easy for you there to, to, to see and go through what you do on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, that's, it's wonderful that you have that strength to be able to, to keep doing this in support of, of Indigenous people. But when you talk to other politicians, when you talk to try and get action done on these things, when you say, you know, this is 25 years, you know, communities are boiling water and other issues, other communities have other issues that are outstanding that that and yet we all know that if it was not an indigenous community, it would be dealt with. So what what kind of action, what kind of answers do you get uh, usually from from people you speak to about this, about why they don't take action? 
it's a uh, it's you're fighting this big machinery of a system, this machinery of government mm. that has been built for you know over 250 years. Mm. Like it's uh, it's a system, and you're fighting this, and I don't expect to change <laughs> it. Like you know. 180 degrees, I don't expect it to change, you know, 90 degrees. But I think if we can change the trajectory of thinking of the people that are in there, mm. you know, whether it's three degrees, whether it's five degrees, you know, whether it's seven degrees, mm. you know, over my, over my time here, like over the four year period. And if I continue and, you know, like that, that I think that will, that's a change that we need. And, and I think, um, I mean, I do know some of the MPPs that are on the other side, like that are in government, some ministers. I, you know, I have a, you know, a relationship with them, but, but it's the policies that they stand behind. I don't agree with. Mm. And it's really frustrating actually to be, you know, when you think that they do not hear, they do not want to make change. Like exactly. Like, I mean, um, if there was a boil water advisory for 25 years and Etobicoke North, mm. which is Doug Ford's riding, mm. the premier's riding, that would not happen at all mm-hmm. because we're First Nations, because we're on reserve, it has continued to happen. And that's what exactly what racism is. Mm. That's what oppression is that's like you know um, colonialism right in your face of what we're seeing example today in the skandaga mm-hmm. and like, uh, I, I heard this girl like speak a uh, uh, clip uh, her name is pidaban monias and there was a clip on it uh, that i seen a few days ago and you know she just wants clean drinking water and you know and and I mean, that's just, um, you know, like, uh, the guys, uh, the de- gentleman that came here into, uh, Queens Park on Sunday night. And one of the things that they said to me on Monday was, you know, when we land, we were so glad that, you know, uh, there was bottled water in the hotel. He mm. said, why? I, why? Because that's the only thing we can drink mm. is bottled water. And we don't, they don't drink from the tap, even though, cause it's so ingrained. They lived it for, you know, for mm. over a quarter century and mm. they're, condition that way yeah and uh, as soon as i heard that i uh, talked to the, the the chief of nishkandaga in thunder and, and when they're in thunder bay at the at the hotel over there i asked him it says so out of all the 250 plus evacuees in nishkandaga who is drinking um the tap water today mm. and he told me right away zero they're all drinking, they're all drinking bottled water as we speak. Yeah, and that's the reality. That's the that's the thing, that's the thing that they're just so conditioned that way, yep. and that's something people don't understand. Just uh, you know yep. how it impacts a life, and that's what you. Yeah, it's a, it's it really has a detrimental impact on the, you know, on who they are, and uh, you know, like they can. There was this young girl too, like young mother of twenty four. Who has a uh, two babies, one and two, one and three, and this young mother has never had clean drink, access to clean drinking water in her community, and and then she 
she buys bottled water to bathe her children for the, uh. you know, the one year old and the three year old. Uh. She doesn't trust. Mm. Even when she's in town, she doesn't right. trust. That's the, that's what happens to the to to people, and that yeah. we cannot accept that a simple basic a basic thing yeah. basic thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so you represent the the writing of Kuetnung, and Kuetnung. Uh, sorry, Kuetnung. Yeah, Kuetnung. Thank you. Yeah, and um, you're also a member of the Kingfisher First Nation. Uh, yes. What what are the what are the issues that you're dealing with in in both the, the, your writing and in your community? What are some of the issues? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think uh, like uh, one of the things is we don't have, uh, you know, like we don't have uh, high schools in our communities. There's only the bigger communities mm-hmm. that have high schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every, like if you're 13 years old, if you're 14 years old, and if you have to leave uh, the community uh, for high school, you have to leave your family, you have to leave your community, you have to leave your friends. And uh, it's a really uh, important that, so that's education is one of them. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, also um, uh, when we talk about uh, getting services closer to home, um, uh, health services, you know, like uh, in my home community, they get five physician days of uh, five days of physician services per month, which is 60 days per year. And uh, so we have to travel down to the community, to uh, urban centers, um, to access healthcare services. Mm. And then one of the things too is, um, um, I have 24 flying communities. Uh, you know, they have, there's no road access and, um, uh, these airports, uh, runways, uh, their gravel runways, mm. uh, their actual lifelines, mm. lifeline to the community to access healthcare, to access education, economic development. You know, like um, the cost of living is very expensive there. Like the cost of food is very expensive. And, you know, I know down here we utilize municipal and provincial roads to access to go to the grocery store and Mm. uh, to go get gas. Mm. These communities, they have to fly in everything and you pay for the the freight cost as Mm. well. Like Mm -hmm. like, a bag of milk could be 15 to 20 dollars of bag, a bag of four liter milk. Yeah. Wow. You know, like uh, we're paying, uh, you know, uh, uh, $2 in excess of maybe 3 three fifty for uh, a liter of gas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's those things. And I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, justice issues as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, we see a lot of uh, our indigenous people in uh, the, the correctional system whereby, uh, you know, like I went to the Kenora jail, an example, and, uh, you know, uh, of the people that I seen, there is about ninety eight percent indigenous people there, and uh, it's just uh, a lot of people that I, uh, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately that I knew and uh, that speak my language. And the system that's there is just, uh, you know, when we talk about access to lawyers, when we talk about access to, uh, uh, you know, like uh, the under resourcing of police services and court system, and you know, it's mm. it's. it's there's so many issues that we face. Housing is a very, uh, housing, uh, the overcrowding is a very big issue. Uh, um, mental health services, uh, there's a, you know, mental health crisis, suicide crisis. I have, you know, in my writing, I have, you know, young people, um, young girls as young as 12, uh, young boys that die by suicide at the age of 12. And that's unacceptable. And, you know, like that's just, uh, 
it's just a, a tragedy and it's just a way that, you know, the, how, you know, it impacts uh, our communities and it's just, uh, and uh, these are the things I'm trying to bring up and, uh, you know, we need to bring these services, whatever services, mm-hmm. they closer, cl- closer to home. And that, mm-hmm. again, that's part of the reason why we talk about, you know, sitting down for those national anthems mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. great awareness for this issue. Saul, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to say Chimigwecha uh, Nyawa for taking the time to join us on the show to share your thoughts with us and tell us about why you uh, chose to uh, and be seated during the playing of God Save the Queen and the Canadian National Anthem while you're in the uh, Legislative Assembly of Ontario. And uh, we wish you all the best and, uh, you know, continued strength uh, when you when you take the, the role of, of standing up for Indigenous issues and, and try to get some action taken. So uh, once again, Nyawa and Chimigwech for being on the show with us. Okay, Kishimigwech. Okay, take care. That's the voice of Saul Mamakwa. He's an NDP MPP for the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, and he was elected in 2018. And he represents the riding of Kuetnung. And he's also a member of the Kingfisher First Nation. And he was talking to us about why he takes the seat during the God Save the Queen and the Canadian National Anthem, as I said, in the uh, Legislative Assembly of Ontario, and also telling us about the other outstanding issues that have been going on for years and years in First Nation communities, and in particular in Northern communities in Ontario. That's Moment of Truth for today. I want to thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day, and we'll see you again tomorrow, right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. See you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.